Hello everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to Magnify, a podcast dedicated to equipping Christians to live and defend their faith so that we can magnify Jesus Christ in our daily lives by making him known to the world. I'm your host, Justin Begley, and I'm incredibly grateful that you decided to join in with us today as we continue our series, In Defense of Christianity, with our third question of worldviews, morality. Well, the topic of this episode may be one of my favorite topics of apologetics, possibly next to meaning and purpose that we covered last week. So the question of morality is not necessarily one that is easy to tackle, and I can't possibly be able uh, uh, to cover everything on the topic in just one episode. There's just so many avenues that conversations surrounding morality can go down. And so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all a brief introduction into how apologists kind of approach the question of morality and save the rest of the discussions, kind of other avenues we might be able to go down for future episodes. And so I wonder how many of you have heard this statement said before. We are living in a postmodern world. Or how about this one? What is good for you is not necessarily good for me. Or maybe this one. Just live your truth. Or kind of maybe said a different way. Live your best life. We hear these types of comments a lot in our culture, right? These are what we can call moral statements. Living your truth or living your best life are moral decisions. Determining what is good, if even just for yourself, is a moral decision. And in the Western world uh, that that many of, uh, of us live in, we're constantly seeing prominent political figures, famous people, and even ordinary people getting uh, what you what has kind of been commonly uh, phrased as canceled, which kind of like you know, you're fired from their their jobs, they're dropped from their contracts for for saying or doing something that a majority faction, some group of people um, that may just in fact have the loudest voices, don't like. These folks uh, kind of go around canceling people. Um, the ones that do that are making judgments based on some moral standard. So I wonder what that standard may be, if a transcendent one even exists. And and as we'll see, the moral standard has to be transcendent. Oftentimes, those who castigate others with whom they disagree, uh, kind of as bigots, you could say, will agree with the tenets of postmodernism and agree with the idea of, of subjective morality and truth. Isn't it interesting, then, that these folks... Uh, say that objective moral values do not exist because we're all kind of just living in a postmodern world, living out our truth, and yet claim that others ought to be canceled and tossed out to the outer echelons of society for saying something that the canceler deemed to be immoral? Is that not inconsistent? 
is it not is not canceling someone effectively asserting the existence of an objective morality um some objective moral standard upon which the decision is made to cancel someone if even if you don't believe in an objective moral standard do you see the inconsistency there this is the type of question we're going to analyze today, and I think that uh, this might be one of the more relevant and interesting topics in apologetics for many of us because of how it directly impacts us every single day. It's easy to overlook things like the Kalam cosmological argument and the teleological argument because things like the beginning of the universe is not uh, something that, that many people think about on, on, on the day-to-day, kind of day in and day out. It's not something that is experientially relevant to a lot of us. And so when uh, discussing the uh, moral argument for the existence of God, though, uh, that, is, that is experientially relevant. Every day we have to make a decision about how we ought to live and how we ought to behave. Why? Because we're moral agents that bear the image of God. And so other people who also bear God's image are people that are worthy of dignity and respect. And so every day we have to decide and make moral decisions about whether or not we are going to treat other people with dignity and respect. So I think... um, uh, that we can actually formalize this into a, well, formal argument. And this isn't something that I came up with. Again, I'm borrowing this from a lot of different apologists who have developed this over time, um, kind of popularly used by Dr. William Lane Craig and formerly uh, uh, Norm Geisler and um, Oz Guinness and, and all these other people. So I think I think that, that this is a very um, important and popular argument, but it's, it's very powerful. And so, what is this argument that I'm talking about? Well, um, the moral argument for the existence of God goes something like this. Premise one. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Premise two. Objective moral values do exist. And this implies that, therefore, God exists. And so, Like we always do, let's kind of go through and examine these premises. So if the premises, again, are true, then the conclusion, namely that God exists, kind of just falls right out logically and necessarily. So let's define some terms. What does it mean to be objective? Well, objectivity implies that something does not depend on the opinions or beliefs of people. To say that moral values are objective means that they are binding and and valid uh, independently from human beliefs. This is, of course, opposed to uh, subjective, uh, which implies that moral values are based on personal feelings or preferences. These feelings and preferences are subject to change, and consequently so are moral values if they are, in fact, subjective. Now, let's apply these definitions to what we're talking about. For example, if I say that the Holocaust was objectively evil, what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that regardless of what the Nazis believed, despite the fact that they thought what they were doing was good, what they did to the Jewish people in Germany and surrounding countries like Poland and Austria was objectively wrong. And I'm applying, a, so I'm applying a, a standard of morality that transcends the beliefs of the Nazis. So the Holocaust was objectively wrong. 
and it would still have been wrong even if the Nazis had won World War II, taken over the world, and brainwashed everybody into believing that the Holocaust was actually good. So even though a majority of people may believe something is good, like the Holocaust, as in Nazi Germany, or if they had brainwashed the entire world into believing it, their beliefs don't matter. It's still objectively wrong. So that's what I mean by objective morality. A morality that transcends the beliefs of people. So let's examine premise two, I think, uh, first might be the, the best way to go about this because I think it's the easiest to comprehend. Premise two says that objective moral values exist. And I think that we're kind of generally uh, able to understand this kind of on an intuitive level. Uh, and this is, of course, despite the push from postmodernist philosophers and other proponents of the kind of quote-unquote live-your-truth worldview that all truth is actually relative. Um that, that premise two instead says objective moral values actually exist, that all moral values are not relative, but they are in fact objective. I went to a public school for high school and then later a Catholic college for undergrad. I'm not Catholic, by the way. But while I was studying at both schools, I couldn't help but notice that from uh, professors to administrators to seminar lectures, uh, uh, students were constantly being taught that everything is relative and that societies and cultures develop their own set of morals and that this is actually in fact a good thing. But even more, students are often taught that it is actually arrogant to say that one culture is better than another or for a culture to impose their values upon another society. But, but while kind of observing how students and the faculty uh, that were teaching us this stuff uh, lived their lives, I saw nothing but complete inconsistencies from what they said that they actually believed. Nobody actually lives the postmodern way. Nobody truly believes that moral values are relative. Most people would say, in fact, that the Holocaust was objectively evil. Most people would say that rape is objectively evil. Most people would say that cannibalism is objectively evil. We intuitively know these things. Christian philosopher John Jarogi um, said about the moral argument that any proof you succeed in producing will be weaker than the self-evident nature of morality. We apprehend the moral, the moral realm in the same way that we apprehend the external world. He says further that uh, no one is a moral relativist when it comes to what we really care about. The reality of morality comes into clear focus when we come face to face with a problem of evil. And we'll talk about uh, a little bit later the problem of evil. Um, so what he's saying is that anyone who admits something like the Holocaust or rape is objectively wrong admits that there exists a realm of objective moral values by which to judge these horrific acts. So I think we all pretty much know intuitively um, that objective moral values do in fact exist. And suggesting then that premise two is actually very plausible. What about the first premise? First premise says if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. We can also put it this way if objective moral values exist, then God exists. But why is God necessary for the existence of objective moral values? Well, in the absence of God, everything becomes socio-culturally relative. This is why in some cultures we greet our neighbors 
and in other cultures, they eat their neighbors. Well, you might be asking, why does everything become socio-culturally relative if God does not exist? Because if God does not exist, then all that exists is the natural world, the physical uh, uh, realm of objects in space and time. This is what the naturalists believe, by the way. On naturalism, there is no foundation for objective moral values because to them, God, who is the transcendent anchor point for morality, does not exist. And thus, as William Lane Craig says, it's hard to say why human beings would be special or that morality uh, uh, that has evolved among human beings would be objectively binding. Dr. Dr. Craig further says that with naturalism, humans have no moral obligation to do anything and are merely products of biological and social evolution, and that the values that we embrace today are simply the sociobiological relative byproducts of the system of evolution. Consider the belief of atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, a favorite amongst the naturalist community. He said, quote, Ethics arise from the pressure of the community on the individual. Man does not always instinctively feel the desires which are useful to his herd, the herd being anxious that the individual should act in its interests, has invented various devices for causing the individual's interest to be in, the, to be in harmony with that of the herd. One of these is morality. That's end quote. So, in other words, uh, Russell believes that morality is a sort of herd mentality that the herd imposes on individuals to ensure that individuals are acting in the best interest of the herd. So, this is kind of what we are seeing with people involved in cancel culture right now. Many of these folks denounce God as their ultimate authority and thus have devolved into a sort of chaos serving only the will of the herd at large. In a different sense, uh, uh, kind of on another side of the coin here for morality, um, atheist philosopher of biology, Michael Ruse, believes that morality is simply a product of evolution, a kind of sociobiological spin-off, as Dr. Craig puts it. Dr. Roos, who's a professor at my current university, says morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. In other words, moral values are whatever they need to be to survive. In this view, just as a lion killing a zebra for food isn't murder, a person killing another for some survival reason isn't murder either. It's just kind of nature playing out as it should. I think we all can can understand that's pretty ridiculous. But still others, namely humanists, will say that God is not necessarily uh, uh, necessary for, uh, for objective moral values to exist. They will say that people rather than God are the measure of all things, and thus the locus of all moral values. So whatever leads to human flourishing, they say, is that which is morally good. But this too is problematic. What is their starting point for this belief? Humanists are self-proclaimed atheists, so on the tenets of naturalism, humans are nothing more than animals, just more advanced uh, than other species. So why then are humanists committing speciesism by, by elevating humans over other animals and saying that we, in fact, are the locus of, of morality? Why do they elevate humans to be the foundation for moral values? Is it our capacity to reason? Perhaps, but we still run into the problem of morality that is socio-culturally relative. 
Again, as I said, in some cultures we greet our neighbors, and in others, they eat their neighbors. Both cultures equally agree that that's probably in line with human flourishing, or else we wouldn't do it. Think of the Canaanites in the Old Testament. They were performing abhorrent acts of evil, acts, acts that God judged them for and sent Israel to end their evil ways. Canaanites were known for sacrificing their children to their false gods to gain favor with them. I'm sure they thought that their gods uh, would allow them to flourish if they did this, right? They also practiced bestiality and incest. I'm sure uh, that some also thought this was, this was flourishing. Or else again, why would they do it? The Lord lists out a bunch of Canaan sins in Leviticus 18. And yet, despite what they believed, what the Canaanites were doing was objectively evil. Sacrificing your children are objectively evil. Right? Humanists may even call these acts, uh, uh, these acts that the Canaanites performed objectively evil, but they have no foundation to stand on when they say that. They have no basis by which to claim the acts of the Canaanites uh, uh, to be immoral. The theist, on the other hand, specifically the Christian theist, can call the child sacrifice and bestiality and incest of the Canaanites objectively evil because God transcends culture and biological evolution and thus transcends uh, is the is the transcendent anchor point for morality. So if God does not exist, then moral values are merely the result of social and biological forces, and thus they're not objective. Social pressures from from a herd create a subjective shifting of values based on the desires of the herd. What the majority wants goes. Biological pressures implies that whatever keeps you alive and disperses your genes, which can include objectively evil things like murder and rape, is considered moral. So, um, so I, I don't think it's 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 out of the question here to say that that uh, that God, as being the uh, transcendent anchor point for moral values, is in fact necessary to ground objective morality, and we know that objective morality exists just intuitively. I also want to quickly mention the idea of moral duties. If all morality is relative, or if it comes from social and biological pressures, then who is enforcing morality? Certainly a society can uh, can do this through law, what is called a kind of legislating morality, but what if a society imposes laws that are unjust and immoral? The state will enforce these laws, but that doesn't mean that the law is moral. Consider slavery in the, in the American South. That was legal. Consider Jim Crow laws following the Civil War. Those were actual state-sponsored laws. Or even now, uh, consider the legalization and the possibly taxpayer funding of abortions. The murder of an unborn baby. That's legal. And it's considered by some as moral. So all of these things were legal at one point, and abortion, again, still is. So certainly... Moral values can be imposed on people by the state, but these moral these moral, moral duties uh, uh, need not necessarily be moral by any standard. Chuck Colson, a late Christian apologist who founded the Colson Center, said in his uh, in his book "How Now Shall We Live?" He says the loss of moral authority in the law means we have forfeited the rule of law and reverted to arbitrary human rule. The rule of law cannot survive unless there is an unchanging and transcendent standard against which we can measure human laws. Otherwise, the law is whatever the lawmakers or judges say it is.
And I think that Mr. Colson is, is absolutely right here. Um, and, and we continue to see this um, uh, play out with huge consequences today. What about non-legal issues? Say the moral duty of uh, to love or be compassionate or be just. Who or what imposes those moral duties? Well, for the Christian, that's easy. We have moral obligations to God as given to us by his commands and as written on our hearts. When, when Paul talks about how the Lord has written his law on our hearts. What is it uh, that, that 1 John 1 says? We love because he first loved us. Or how about 1 Peter? Be holy because I am holy. Christians have moral obligations, moral duties, because we have a desire to do the will of our Father because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's why Jesus said to the disciples after meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So as children of God, Christians get access to the Father and thus are able to seek his will and do what he has commanded us because through obedience, we are made holy in the image of Christ. It is God's will that we be sanctified. That's that, that word set apart to be made holy. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that God's will is for us to be sanctified. Without God, it's inexplicable to me as to why anyone would choose to do good over evil. And we Christians know that to be true, considering the fact that we were all once evil, wicked in the eyes of God before Christ. We were far from God because of our sins. But God changed us. He renewed our hearts. He renewed our minds. And he made us seek after righteousness because we recognize what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so with all that said, I think that premise one is especially plausible. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. And since I believe that premise two is also plausible, I think the conclusion is inevitable. God exists. But still, many atheists will come and say, there's just so much evil in the world. There's so much suffering in the world. How can there possibly exist a God with all this evil and suffering? Well, I like how Dr. Craig kind of uh, approaches this contention. What he does is he bifurcates the issue um, into, into two separate issues. And so he says that there's a logical problem of evil and an emotional problem of evil. Starting with the philosophical or the logical side of this contention, uh, this is actually very easy to deal with. And there are, there are, I think, two ways that we can look at the problem of evil from the philosophical view, both of which actually end up proving the existence of God. So the first way is that, that we can kind of look at uh, uh, and, and handle the problem of evil from the logical view is by appealing back to the moral argument. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. If objective moral values exist, then evil exists. And the atheist admits that it does when they ask about this problem. Because otherwise, uh, otherwise we, we couldn't say that that something is objectively evil, uh, it, unless, unless we have an objective moral standard by which to judge uh, the difference between good and evil. And then from there, we can move to premise two from the original argument that objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. So the existence of evil actually ends up proving the existence of God. 
Now, the other way we can look at this from the logical side of, of things is a, just kind of another version of the moral argument. So let's say an atheist says to you, because evil exists, I cannot believe in God. Well, you may say to the atheist, if evil exists, then I assume you believe that good exists because there must be something other than evil that you desire. And if you believe that good and evil exist, then I assume you believe in the existence of a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. And if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. What then is your argument? And the atheist might say, well, okay, but why do you have to posit a moral lawgiver? And you might say, because any time the question of evil is raised, it's either raised by a person or about a person. It's either raised by a person or about a person, which is to say that the person that the question is raised by or about has intrinsic value. They have inherent worth. Only the Judeo-Christian God, by the way, is said to give people intrinsic worth because we are made imago Dei in God's image. And because we're made in God's image, uh, we have inherent worth. We have intrinsic value. Do you remember when the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trap Jesus with the question of whether they ought to pay the imperial tax to Caesar? It's recorded in three of the four Gospels, but let's just kind of look at Matthew's account. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So brief pause, just to point out, the Jewish leaders here were trying to kind of puff up Jesus and flatter him uh, with ill motives to try to, trick, to try to trick him. But as we'll see, Jesus just saw right through them. So he says, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So Jesus tells the Pharisees and Herodians, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And they didn't dare ask him a follow-up question after being caught in their trickery. So, uh, uh, so I find that really interesting because um, I think uh, that perhaps they should have asked Jesus this question. Well, what belongs to God? And I imagine Jesus would have responded, whose image is on you? You see, we have immense worth because we bear the image of God and God places such high value on us because we belong to him. And so when the question of evil is raised, it logically points right back to the existence of the Christian God. But what about the emotional side of the argument that I mentioned? 
what is the emotional side of the problem of evil? Well, this is something that, that we Christians ought to be especially sensitive to. As we've seen, the problem of evil uh, does not disprove the existence of God, despite arguments from the atheists. So we uh, shouldn't run from this by any means. But we should recognize that evil and suffering impacts both believers and non-believers on a deep emotional level. So these emotions still uh, don't disprove the existence of God, but it can leave many kind of thinking that maybe God has abandoned them or, or that he doesn't care about them or that if he's real, why is he doing this? Why is he allowing this to happen? What can the naturalist uh, or the atheist say to a person in suffering? Ah, you, you know, you just got randomly dealt an unlucky hand. Sorry. Even popular atheists, or, or not atheists, but Eastern faiths, uh, like Hinduism and Buddhism and, and New Age spirituality. What do they have to say to those in suffering? Well, they might say, liberate yourself from the desires of the world and you will no longer suffer. If you keep, if you keep uh, embedding yourself in, in the world, you're ne- you're, your suffering is never going to end. So just detach yourself, whatever that means. You will have nirvana or moksha by detaching yourself from the world, right? Well, what hope and, and what peace does that bring to somebody who's in suffering? In these faiths, they just believe that uh, you must have had a bad past life because you're reincarnated into someone who would suffer. And and what of the next reincarnation then? Are you going to be reincarnated into a different organism that that uh, um, that you know you, you really won't even have a a, a a worthy life then, a valuable life because you spent this life suffering? Or will you get rewarded from it? I mean, there's there's just no hope in these religions, and for, for those that are um, that are suffering now, um, or who have experienced immense suffering, I, I understand how much comfort you need, and I understand that you're that you're searching for peace, you're searching for answers as to why you're suffering. Please allow me to offer this piece of encouragement to you when you're suffering. You're in good company. What do I mean by this? Well, this is just the amazing truth about the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead, humbled himself by putting on flesh, being born of a virgin as a baby, living a sinless life, and going to the cross to suffer and to die for us, knowing that it was his Father's will that none should perish, but that all would have eternal life. Paul says in Philippians 2, uh, verse 7 through 8, that he, Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus fulfilled the role of the suffering servant uh, that the prophet Isaiah foretold about in Isaiah 53. Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering uh, and familiar with pain. Like one from people uh, hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, uh, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us 
or has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus did not have to suffer, but it was the will of the Father that he would suffer and die to heal our wounds, to save us from our sins. Jesus suffered more than any person in all of history. Yes, he was crucified, uh, which is an unfathomably horrific and painful way to die, but many others were also crucified, so he wasn't alone in that. But you see, Jesus experienced more suffering than anyone in history because by taking on the iniquity of us all, by bearing the full burden and weight of our sins, he experienced separation from the presence of the Father. It was at that time that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And this separation is why while on the cross, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. God, God, why have you forsaken me? A living person can experience no greater pain and suffering than being separated from the presence of God. So for those that are currently suffering or have suffered, know that you have a Savior who came here to suffer so that the world uh, would be saved from their sins. Jesus can identify with you. He knows what you're going through. He knows that it's hard and that it hurts. He's experienced and he's, he is suffering with you. So you can have peace knowing that Jesus is with you in your suffering. And he understands what you're going through. But there's more to it than that. Jesus came to suffer so that you wouldn't have to. Now you might be saying, what, what do you mean? I'm suffering right now. Listen to what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus blesses and comforts those, are who, those who are in mourning, poor in spirit, meek and persecuted. If you're suffering right now, take comfort in knowing that you have a God who sees you, who knows you, and who comforts you. I can't say that faith in Jesus will heal you, will, will, is going to heal you or end your suffering. The Bible doesn't say that. That's bad theology. But what I can say is this. We have a God who suffers with us, and there is coming a day when there will be no death, there will be no mourning, no crying, no pain, and God will wipe away every tear away from our eyes. It says this in Revelation 21. 
Listen to what it says, starting in verse 1. This is John kind of talking about the vision he saw that, that the Lord brought to him. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. How beautiful is that? There is coming a day when we will dwell with the Lord in his presence for all eternity. This is the hope of Christianity. Christians who are suffering can take heart knowing that their Redeemer lives and will make all things new. So I think it's the Christian faith alone that can adequately answer the question of morality and the problem of evil. More than that, Christians alone have the incredible hope that is revealed to us in Revelation 21 and other parts of Scripture. Vince Vitale, a Christian philosopher and apologist, said this, Before time, God chose us out of the desire to love. In time, God loved us enough to suffer with us. And at the end of time, God will set all things right. If you're listening and have yet to give your life to Christ, I would just ask you this. What are you waiting for? Maybe you're listening to check out this Christianity thing, or maybe you're out kind of on a truth quest to see which worldview makes the most sense whatever the case may be jesus sees you he knows you and he loves you and god doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to enter eternal life with him for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life you might be thinking why do I need Jesus? I'm a good person. Surely if God is good and benevolent, he won't send me to hell. No, no. Don't be mistaken. The Bible says that no one is righteous. No, not one. And that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say, I'm a way. He says, I am the way to the Father. Jesus is the only means by which you can go to heaven and have eternal life with God. If you chose anything else, you will experience the eternal separation from God that I uh, just told you would be the most painful thing you could ever go through. That's what hell is. Spiritual separation from God. He doesn't want you to go there. But if you're not in Christ, you're already headed there 
because of your sin. God has made atonement for your sins, but you have to willingly accept his free gift of grace. He wants you to. He's patiently waiting. Run to him. Repent. He will accept you because he loves you.